just just getting to worship God. You know, however we do it, whether it be with a, with a full steel guitar and everything, that's a first for us, I'd have to say. And, or, a, or if it's just a simple guitar, or just simply our hearts coming before God, I'd love to be able to do that. And, you know, as we are going chronologically through the Gospels, I see, uh, I see some awesome things getting ready to take place. As a matter of fact, we are at the beginning of the end. That's the best way to describe Matthew chapter 21. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to open up to Matthew chapter 21. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Matthew laying everything out here at the end. He is, he is, his theme is coming to life right here. If you know anything about the Gospels, each one of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they really have a specific audience that they're targeting. And in the process of that specific audience that they target, they are, they are trying to share who Jesus is to that specific group of people. Well, in this, in Matthew, he's trying to share with the Jews that Jesus is the king. And if you look throughout, we started a year and a half ago at the birth of Jesus. We walked through the genealogy, if you remember that. We did Christmas in September a year and a half ago. And, and as we walked through Christmas in September, we laid out that, that this was the son in the line of David that was going to be coming the Messiah, the king. And that was how Matthew opened up. And now we're at Matthew chapter 21 where it really lays itself out. So like I said, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that because we're going to take a look as Jesus is asserting himself as the Messiah. And he is asserting himself and Matthew's recording it because he wants to share with these Jews that all the prophecies of the Old Testament are coming true in this man, in this God who has flesh on. And he's laying this out for these people, and what he's going to do is he's going to point that in our direction as well. As a matter of fact, as we see that he is the king, as he is the Messiah, we're going to see it in this passage literally 13 different places. We're going to read Matthew 1, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. And as we look at it, we're going to look at 13 different things. Now, some of you just went, wow, we have 13 points for real? Yes, we do. Okay, but I'm going to make some of them short. Most of them short. Okay, I'm going to do my best, I promise. So we're going to look through that. And then what we're going to do is we're going to say, well, that's great and all, but how does it apply to us? We're going to take a look at how it applies to us. So let's go ahead, starting in Matthew chapter 21, reading is starting in verse 1. And this isn't just a read to read its sake, because this is a story that many of you guys will uh, know. As a matter of fact, if you have ever gone to church on Palm Sunday, this is it. We're doing Palm Sunday just a couple weeks early, okay? About, about four weeks early, actually. Four weeks from today is Palm Sunday. And we're going to do some different things on Palm Sunday. We're, we haven't quite announced it yet, but we're, we're working to do something just a little bit different for that weekend. So um, we're going to do a little bit early and take a walk through Jesus' life with him for this last week. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. I've said that a couple of times. This, I'm actually mean it. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied, a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on the, uh, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you not read? Which I just love it when Jesus says that to the Pharisees because they have obviously read, but he's just reminding them. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, have you prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw this, they marveled, because who wouldn't? And they said, how did this fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. We're so grateful for this story as we see Jesus making that triumphal entry. As we know this week that we are looking at right here, this event is what all of history was pointing at and all that happened afterward pointed back at. It is the central climax of everything. And God, as we look at it, may we see it that way. Not just another story that's in the Bible, not just another thing that we hear during the Easter season, not just something along those lines, but that it is your word coming alive before us. And God, I pray you make that happen today, that it's not my words, that it is yours. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Every verse here points to a different attribute of Jesus the King. Every verse here points in this direction. They show us who King Jesus is. And that's what Matthew wanted to do to the Jews. And that's what Matthew wanted to do for us. And even as you look at it, even as you see it all lay out, you'll see that he keeps referring back to the Old Testament. Every time he refers back to the Old Testament, he's telling these Jews who knew the Old Testament, see, see, take a look. Look how it all works together. And that's what he's trying to do with us as well. So there are 13 different things I want to show you. And like I said, some of them are going to be a little longer than others. But here's the first one. He is the divine king. He is God. We see him as God in the flesh. Does anybody else just marvel at that? Isn't that just the most amazing thing? And Jesus, the man, he divinely ordains. The man who is God divinely ordained that a colt and a donkey would be where they needed him to be at the time that he needed it to be. We read that and we go, oh, that's cool. But Jesus sent two disciples into the city, said there's going to be this donkey, there's going to be its colt, they're going to be tied up together. And if anybody asks you, the Lord said, go ahead, and they're going to let you. What do you think the disciples' response was going to be to that? Uh-huh. Oh, all right. Well, let's, well, I guess we give it a shot. He's done all these other cool things. So what's a, a donkey and a colt, right? No, his whole story, everything that is wrapped up in this points to who he is. The fact that it's all ordained. Have you ever looked at your life and said, man, look how God has ordained and worked and orchestrated it all into his story. That's exactly what he's doing, even to the smallest detail of a donkey and a colt. 
His whole story is being laid out, and he's orchestrated it. He is the great one that knows all. Does that ever just blow your mind just a little bit? We talked about that when we were going through the book of Ephesians starting on Friday morning uh, with our men's Bible study. How amazing it is that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's beyond space. He's beyond time. And we kind of go, what? How can we wrap our heads around the fact that he's able to do these things? He is the divine king. And you know what else he does in that? Is as he's talking, he says, tell them that the Lord sent you. Tell them the Lord needs these things. When he says that, he's actually opened up the door and calling himself God. Because if you look throughout, he could have said, tell them your master has sent you. Tell them that your rabbi has sent you. Tell them that a prophet has sent you. He could have said any one of those things, but he said the Lord. The Lord, the only time the Lord is used throughout the Gospels is referred to and referring to God. So he's calling himself God right here. There's a, there's a turn that is taking place. So first we see he's a divine king. The second thing we see is found in verse 4, because it says this took place to fulfill what was spoken about the prophet, or by the prophet. He's the prophesied king. He's the one that they prophesied about. He says, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Where does that prophecy come from? I know a lot of you Bible scholars are like, yep, I know exactly where that comes from. I had to look it up, so I'll just tell you. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9, and we look at that, and as a matter of fact, it says the daughters of Zion. When it's talking about the daughters of Zion, it's actually talking about the city of Jerusalem, because Mount Zion was the highest point in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. So as we see this, he's saying, Jerusalem, get ready, your king is coming, and he's coming on a donkey. And Zechariah was prophesying to God's people, and as he was writing this, it was 500 years before Jesus had come had been born. This was a prophecy that was 500 years in the making. And you can imagine, as he was prophesying that, he's speaking to a group of Israelites that had just come out of exile. They had just come into the city of Jerusalem. They were trying to rebuild the temple. They'd had failed king after failed king after failed king after failed king. And he says, you guys are going to have a king that is going to come, and he's going to be righteous, and he's going to rule, and he's going to do all these great things in 500 years. No, he didn't say that, but that they, they, had to, they had to say, okay, when's it going to happen? When's this coming? When's this going to, to, to take place? And Zechariah is writing this. As a matter of fact, if you look at Zechariah 9, 9, it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. There's that orchestration. 500 years prior, Zechariah said, this king will come into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. 500 years later, Jesus is standing, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is standing and he says, go get me that donkey that's right in there tied up with its colt. You don't think that's just a little bit awesome? kind of crazy to see it all unfold and that's the prophecy that comes down and as jesus is prophesying we see that not only is he the prophesied king but in that prophecy it tells us what other kind of king he is because it says righteous and having salvation is he so the third one is that he's the righteous king he's the righteous king not like all the other wicked kings that have been all those failed attempts all those ones that have led and done the wrong things he is the righteous king and not only is he going to be righteous, but it says righteous and having salvation is he. He is the Savior King. Having salvation 
bringing salvation. He is bringing something because when people are crying out in Matthew chapter 21, Hosanna, do you guys know what Hosanna means? Hosanna means save us. Save us. And as they're saying, save us, save us now, it's a quotation actually from Psalm 118 when it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Once again, Matthew pointing back to the Old Testament, hearing these things, seeing these things take place. And keep in mind what's going on during this week. What's going on during this week is Passover week. It's the week when the city of Jerusalem will swell to five to six times its current size. People from everywhere are coming to worship in the temple. People from everywhere are coming to give their praise to God because of the Passover, because he granted them salvation from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And now this king is coming, and he's going to shed his blood, the blood of the Lamb, once again for salvation. And Zechariah 9, 9 says, having salvation, he is the Savior King. You know what else he is? The fifth one is? He's the gentle king. He's the gentle king. He's not going to come arrogant or pushy. I'm not sure if uh, we fully grasp what a, a king's coronation would be like because there's not a whole lot of king stuff that goes on here. And even if it is, it's kind of pomp and circumstance. But back then, it was about fear and ruling. When a king stepped in, he told everybody what was going on. This king was coming gently. As a matter of fact, he was coming on a donkey. And in the process of coming on this donkey, he was surrounded by Galileans. He's surrounded by Galileans, and as he is coming in, he's, he's being cheered about. Hosanna, praise to God in the highest. He's coming in meekness. He's coming in poverty. He doesn't have all the pomp and circumstance. He's got some people that are throwing their cloaks on the ground. He's got some people that are cutting off branches and putting them on the ground. That's it. There's not a lot to it. There's not. As a matter of fact, the people in the city go, who is this? What's going on? Why is this all taking place? So he's the gentle king. Not only gentle, he's peaceful. Because if you continue reading in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace. See, when Jesus comes riding on a donkey, we don't think super highly of a donkey. When you have a choice between a horse or a donkey, you're going to choose the horse. Well, then... It actually spoke volumes of what a king was riding. Because if a king was riding on a horse, it meant that he was going to war. That was a signification that he was going to war because he wanted to have the power. But if he wanted to come in peace, he would ride on a donkey. And so Jesus very much so is saying, I am coming as a picture of peace. As a matter of fact, in the story of Luke, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest what Luke 19, 38 says. And as he's coming, as he's riding down, just three verses later, it says that, that Jesus was overcome with emotion. He began to weep for the city. And he says this, would you that had known on this day the things that make for peace, would you know that? As, as he's crying out, saying, do you understand as you're crying out for peace, as you're crying out for Hosanna, as you're crying out for salvation, this salvation that you want, you think I'm coming to overturn the Roman government. But what I'm overcoming to do is I'm coming to overcome sin. And I'm going to give you that freedom from sin, not freedom from the Roman government, but it's a whole different thing. I'm going to bring you peace. But that peace is going to be a reconciliation between you and God, something that hasn't happened. And I'm coming to lay all this out for you. It's not just a peace the people of Israel uh, are going to get. As a matter of fact, Zechariah 9.10 continues, and it says, He shall speak the peace to the nations. So not only is he the peaceful king, but he's also 
the global king. The global king. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, Zechariah continues. King Jesus was prophesied 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years ago. He came 2,000 years ago. Yet he still reigns today. His rule and his reign, and he has sovereignty over everything. And it's something that sometimes is so hard for us to grasp, so hard for us to see, that he's not just the king over the rulers, he's not just the king over Israel, he's not just the king over the nations, but he's king over you and he's king over me individually. He's a global king that speaks peace, that's prophesied in Zechariah 9, and has come to fulfillment in Matthew 21. Now, if we go back to Matthew chapter 21, we'll see that number eight, that he is the messianic king. The crowds surrounded him. I'm not sure how many times maybe you've heard it spoken before, but as the crowds surrounded Jesus, you think that a week later, he's going to be crucified. And the crowds are calling out for him to crucify him. And I always thought, you know, maybe those crowds are the same two groups of people. How could it, at one moment, at the beginning of the week, they lay off their cloaks and they cut the palm branches and they say, Hosanna to the king. And a week later, they're crying out, crucify him. And I got to thinking, you know what? These aren't the same two crowds. And I've heard it preached lots of times that they're the same crowds. And I've thought myself for a long time they were the same crowds. But as he's walking into the city, and as the, the city is five times, six times larger by population than it normally is, he's probably coming into the city with most people from Galilee. They've all been coming into the city. They're all coming in together. And as they're all coming in together, they've all seen his miracles. They've all seen the things that he's done. They've heard his teaching. And they're saying, finally, he's coming into the holy city to overthrow Rome. This is it. Hosanna to the king and the highest. And they're praising him and they're reaching out and they're screaming out for it. And as they're doing it, he's saying, you know what? You know what? I'm, I'm not what you think that I am. And as a matter of fact, inside the city, most people don't know who he is. They say, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And they say, they say, you know what? He's, he's the prophet. He's the prophet. And they've, they've seen him, and these guys in the galley, they've seen him, like I said, they, they're healing, and they're, they're crying out all of these things, and there's no way they had any idea they were connecting the dots as they were walking along going, hey, he's riding on a colt. I think 500 years ago, Zachariah wrote something about this. You guys remember that? I don't think that's what's taking place. All the dots are not being connected, but Matthew is connecting the dots for us. And they'll see afterwards, after the fact, that he is the Messianic king, that he is the Messiah that Matthew is writing about, that Luke is writing about, that Mark is writing about, that John is writing about. He is the Messiah. The ninth thing we see is he's the compassionate king. He's the compassionate king. He wept over the city. He wept over the city. And you get to thinking, you're like, why in the world would he cry over the city? What is it about the city that is just breaking his heart? And the only thing I could even picture it to is, is I've had many of opportunity to, to talk with parents um, about a wayward child. I just, don't, I just don't know what to do. And when they say, I just don't know what to do, that's when the tears start to flow. I don't, I don't know what else I can do to bring them back to the, the way. They, they've gone off the path that, that I know is better for their life. When my kids make a bad decision, and guess what? They do, just like their dad does. Makes a bad decision, and you say, man, I wish you would just learn from me and the bad decision I made, because I remember when I made that same decision when I was 10, and it got me in a whole lot of trouble. I don't want you to get in trouble. Learn from my mistake. Don't learn from yours. And you see that, and that's the only thing I can even come close to relating it to, because your heart breaks that you want 
this to work. You want the city to, to fall into. And that's why Jesus is crying, because he knows the way to make it happen is to die for them. And he's weeping for them. He's the compassionate king. And then we see as they, they are pointing out, they say that he is the prophet from Nazareth. The tenth thing is that he's a prophetic king. Because he's more than just a prophet. He is the prophet. Because what was a prophet's job in the Old Testament? A prophet's job was to reveal the word of God. Well, was Jesus not the ultimate revelation of the word of God in the flesh? He is the prophet that is out there. So now we've gotten through ten of them. Most of you are like, yes! These next three are going to take a little longer, all right? Um, Number 11, he's the holy king. He's the holy king. I want you to flip back, if you do me a favor, to a book called Malachi, okay? It's just before uh, Matthew there, so you can flip over to that one. And we're going to look in chapter 3 here really fast, okay? If you look at Malachi chapter 3, it's the book that's right before Matthew. Once again, prophesied 500 years before Jesus came. This is what he says in uh, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant who is in him you delight, and behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit at a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. I'm not sure if you see that, but it's saying the Lord will come. And as he comes, he's going to restore the worship life between Israel or God's people and God. And as we see that take place, we have to understand that that when these these Uh, you know, people that were living in Jerusalem, the Israelites, they heard Malachi write that. What do you think they expected? I'm pretty sure they probably expected this king to come and overthrow and that Israel would rule everything, but it was totally different than what they expected. And as Jesus walks into the court of the Gentiles, which is the outer court of of the temple, he sees something. He sees money trading going on. He sees the sale of, of pigeons. He sees the sale of different offerings. There's, there's people taking advantage of each other. There's people that are, that are robbing from each other. And it's not what the court was designed for. The court was designed for the Gentiles to be able to worship in a place and be able to praise God. So what's Jesus do? He's the holy king. And like it says in Malachi, he comes to refine. He comes to clean out. He comes to pure. He starts tossing over tables in righteous anger. And in that righteous anger, he's yelling out. He says, you know what? My house shall be called a house of prayer. My house should be called a house of prayer. And we see that coming from Isaiah 56. Once again, Jesus, Matthew, pointing back to the Old Testament, saying, look at this. And he says, my house, he's once again referring to himself as God. And he says, you, though, have made it a den of robbers, quoting back to Jeremiah 7. See, Jeremiah 7 is an address in the Old Testament where God is actually disciplining his people because they're coming to him with hollow worship. They're coming to him out of, you know, just basically doing it to do it, but they're going back to their regular things the next day. Check out what, actually what it says in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Will you steal? Murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say that we're delivered? 
only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. See, it says they, they offered worship, yet they didn't walk with God. Can we do that? Is that possible? I would say the answer to that is yes, because we see it just about every weekend in churches all around America, all around the world, that we offer up worship and we praise to a God that, that has saved us, and then we go back to worshiping all of our other gods the rest of the week. And he says, that can't happen. Jesus is the holy king, and he's not going to deal with sin lightly. He's not going to let that take place. He's not going to let all that happen. So he goes in, and he's cleansing the temple. And as he's cleansing the temple, we see something here. We see the, the pointing to the fact that Jesus isn't just every other little king thing that we've said, from the holy king to the, the divine king, but he's also the authoritative king. He might be coming in peacefully, but he's the authoritative king. And in this chapter, in the next few chapters we're going to see, as we look over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, that he will make clear his authority. And there's some things that are very clear about his authority. The first one is this. He has authority over the temple. He has authority over the temple. Back in Matthew chapter 12, he actually says, I am greater than the temple. He says, this temple is mine. Now, I want you just to stop for a second and take a look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. Their whole life, is about religious show. And that religious show leads right up to the temple. And it has them being in charge of all this stuff that's going on there. And then this guy comes in and he throws everything over and he does all this stuff and he says, I am greater than the temple. How do you think they're going to respond to that? Well, we know how they respond to it because they kill him in a week. They're not happy about it. They're not happy about it, the way it's all coming about. But he says, I have authority over the temple. The second thing we see actually is he has authority over disease. He has authority over disease because not only is he in there throwing over tables in righteous anger, but he's also showing some amazing divine compassion. There's a verse, verse 14 of Matthew chapter 21, that is real easy to read over. We kind of see it and we go, oh yeah, that's great and all. But let me, let me flip back to it really fast here for you. And this is what it says. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Just a sentence in the middle of, my house should be called a house of prayer. The blind and the lame come. But when the chief priests and the scribes and the wonderful things that they did and the children crying out, they were indignant. They weren't happy about it. But we missed for some reason in that verse 14 what he did. The blind and the lame, they're stuck in the middle of that temple. That's as far as they can go because they are not pure enough to go any further. They're not healthy enough to go any further. They're stuck in that outer part of it all. And as they're stuck in the outer part of it all, they're there to beg. They're there to, to get what they can. They're not there to be able to praise and worship. They're, they're there to try and get what they can while they can. And Jesus heals them. We see this compassion pour out of him. But he has the authority over disease. He has the authority over disease and he heals them and he shows that authority. And he's not just the king of kings. He's not just the Lord of lords. He's not just the one who rules over the religious leaders or any leaders in the nation, but he also rules over every ache, every pain, every hurt, every sickness that we have. He is the king. He also has authority over all people. Kind of a funny part of this story. The children in the temple, they see all this going on, and they're yelling out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, Messiah. That's basically what they're saying. Hosanna means save us. Son of David means the Messiah. Save us, Messiah. Remember we've talked in the past about how children didn't really register on the uh, human scale? 
They were a little bit below. They weren't quite worth it. They didn't, what a whole lot about them. And Jesus is taking praise from them. And as he's taking praise from them, the Pharisees are not happy about it. They're saying, hey, um, don't you uh, understand what these guys are saying? You need to do something about it. You need to tell them to stop talking. You need to tell them to stop praising you. And what's Jesus do? Yeah, it's all good to me. But they're calling you the Messiah. They're blaspheming. Jesus says, they're not blaspheming. Once again, inside, what do you think that does to those Pharisees? Well, once again, we see it starts leading into that last week. Jesus is deliberately accepting praise that is due to God alone. Because he is God. And the religious leaders are shocked. They're saying, do you realize what they're saying? And Jesus basically says, yeah, I do. And not only do I realize it, I would receive it from you as well if you'd be so happy to share that with me. But that's not the way it went. And that's why we see that they crucify him. He has authority over all people, but he also has authority over all creation. This next part of this story is probably one of my favorite, favorite things that Jesus does. I know that most people are like, really? Withering a fig tree is one of your favorite things that Jesus does? Yes. There's just something really amazing about it. See, Jesus goes back, and he goes back to, to sleep, and he takes the night off. All this other stuff's happened all day long. I'm sure he's tired, and he gets hungry, and he comes back up the next morning, and he sees a fig tree with leaves on it. And he goes to that fig tree with leaves on it, expecting there to be figs. Because the reason why he's expecting there to be figs, because a fig tree, which by the way, figs are gross. But the, uh, oh man, my neighbor had a fig tree when I was growing up and he used to make homemade fig newtons. And like, I'll just take the ones at Nisco Banks. That'd be fine. But um, the, uh, the, the, the fig tree, if it had leaves on it, meant it also had fruit on it. It was a sign of having fruit. So when he shows up, he sees from a distance that this fig tree looks like it's fully healthy. Looks like it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, but when he gets close enough to it, he sees it doesn't have any fruit. So what's he do? He curses it. I mean, can you imagine when you show up? I mean, Jerome and I, we went to Sam's Club this week. That's where we, that's where we have our, our staff meeting sometimes. We're eating at Sam's Club for, uh, for $4.10 to get two hot dogs, two drinks, and a bag of chips. And, and we're sitting there, and we're uh, we, we got our hot dogs, and we went over to the, the machine, and they're out of uh, tea. They're out of um, the vitamin water stuff that we drink. So I ended up having to drink fruit punch. And oh, I, I just don't like fruit punch, but it's the only option that was there. And I'm like, oh, great. So I walk over, and I go to hit the mustard thing. And I'm like, and there's nothing coming out. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? And I walked over to the thing, and I'm like, hey, there's no mustard. And like, yeah, we know. We sent somebody to get it. And I'm like, you guys are Sam's Club. You have mustard coming out of everywhere. You, I'll go get a box and bring it back as long as you guys are, you know, as long as I don't have to pay for it. You know, that, that was my thinking in it all. And they're like, yeah, we're coming. And of course, I'm sitting there. I'm watching everybody else go over the mustard thing. Nothing coming out. So I had to eat my hot dog with just ketchup on it. And I'm like, Whoa. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at Jerome. And, you know, we always pray before we eat. And I'm like, oh, Jerome's going to let you know. You're going to have to pray because my heart is not in the right place right now. And so he prayed, but I was thinking, what if I could just curse Sam's Club and they could wither up? That'd be pretty awesome. You know what? I was hungry. You didn't provide. Squam! You know, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? And that's what Jesus does here. He does it, and a lot of people say, what? Why did he do it? As a matter of fact, the disciples are like, what? What? Just, what? That fig tree didn't do anything to you, and you just withered it up. And Jesus is like, hang on just a second. There's something more that I need you to see. There's something bigger than this because this part of this story is not just 
a, a part of the story that was just thrown in randomly. It comes right after the temple cleansing. It comes right in after he sees the religious people that look really, really good on the outside, but they are empty and fruitless on the inside. He's making a very strong point here. He's saying this, you can have all kinds of man-centered religious activity going on inside and have all kinds of things, but be completely lacking a God-centered spiritual productivity. You're not producing anything. You're just looking busy. You're just looking busy. That's all you're doing. And that's what he's doing with this fig tree, and he's saying, I have authority over all of this, and he's using that as an example. The last thing that we see, and all this is leading up to this very thing, that he is the coming king. He's the coming king, and we see it in two ways. First, he came humbly riding on a colt. He came humbly riding on a colt, and we said that as he rode on that donkey, that he was coming in a sign of peace. We showed that coming in a sign of peace is what you do when you're riding on a donkey. And we see that taking place, and he came for one purpose. That was to rescue sinners. To rescue sinners. He came not to reign. He came not to to try and, and throw down the Roman government. But he came instead to die. That's why he came. He came for that reason. He came to Jerusalem to be crucified as king. That's the first time he's coming. But you know what? There's a second time. There's a, a lot of people thought he was coming to del- deliver them from Rome, but he was coming to deliver them from sin. But there's a second time he's going to be coming. If you have your Bible, flip to the last book of the Bible in the book of Revelation. And, you know, uh, I've read, I heard Johnny Cash read the book of Revelation. I'm like, man, that guy's got a really cool voice, and it sounds so good, and I tried to find it for this very reason, but he wasn't available. So um, the, uh, the thing is that I'm going to have to do it and just read it and to let you kind of hear Johnny Cash's voice through mine. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse. Remember what the difference was between a donkey and a horse? And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head, on his head are many diadems. And his, has his name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury with the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, the first time he came humbly riding on a colt, but the second time he's coming on a horse to reign sovereignly. And he's not coming to, to die, but he's coming to rule. He's coming not to rescue sinners, but to rule sinners. See, you have a chance at the first time that he comes to, to make him the Lord of your life, to make him the king, to recognize him, what Matthew's trying to point out, that he is the sovereign king of our lives. The second time he comes, it's too late if you haven't done it yet. And I'm not putting the scare tactics in it. I'm not one of those hellfire, brimstone type preachers. But that's the reality of it all. The first time he came to rescue you, the second time he comes is to rule over you. And if you do not confess here, you will confess here. Because it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the choice is where we have it here. And how does all of that apply to us? As he is coming a second time to be crowned king, 
but this first time. How do all these things is pointing to? Well, there's a couple things that I see. Application-wise for us is this. First, let's give this king all of our praise. Let's give this king all of our praise. Surrender to him today. Let's not have hollow worship. Let's not have something that he doesn't like, that he doesn't want. Let's not do that. Let's give him his all. Second is, is let's prioritize in prayer. He said, my, my house shall be called the house of prayer. A lot of times we'll see that and we'll say, oh, okay, well, this is, this is his house. This is, this is his house here. But you know what? That, that's not entirely true. This is where his house gathers. Because this right here is his house. And you are his house. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are where God dwells. And as God dwells there, my question is, is are we a house of prayer? Are we people, are we a church who dwells upon the word of God, who lives in the presence at his feet like we talked about last week? Are we as a church, are we as a group of people that make up the church, people who pray? Because, see, we are bombarded with Christian commercialism. We are bombarded with Christian consumerism. We are bombarded with materialism. And a religion has this tendency to be filled with so much fluff, but we miss what is most important, the communion with God. As a matter of fact, we talked in our uh, Bible study on Friday morning, um, you know, if God is all-knowing, and God is all-present, and God is all-powerful, why do we need to pray? What's the, what's the point of praying if he knows everything and he has everything already kind of planned out? What, why do we stop and pray? What's the point of that? Part of it is, is that, well, you know what, maybe I'll just let you go to that prayer thing tonight. I bet it gets answered there. I'll give you a little, little taste of what it is, though, because Jesus prayed. And Jesus prayed because he wanted to have communion with God. He wanted to be connected with God. That's why we pray. How often are we just busy about God's work but have no idea what God actually wants because we've never talked to him about it? How often is that in our lives? As a matter of fact, that's the next thing, and it leads us to that. We need to bear fruit in our lives. See, Jesus doesn't desire hollow worship and hypocritical religion. That's not his desire. He doesn't want us to look pretty on the outside but be superficial and not bear fruit. We are to bear fruit. We are to pour ourselves out. We are to have the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the gentleness, the self-control. We're, we're to have those things as, as an evidence in our lives that we are a follower of Christ. We're supposed to be bearing those, not just going to worship services. That's why up front we said be present. Because how many times, how many times have I come into a service and said, all right, well, in about an hour and a half, I'll be done, and I'll have Sunday afternoon just to do whatever I want. Too many times. Too many times when I sing the songs, I'm thinking about, okay, my list for Monday is this. My list for Tuesday is this. Well, I'm doing, and you're writing notes down, or you're adding them to your phone. Those notes are really like your to-do list for this week. Too many times I've done that. So my guess is there's probably too many times you've done it as well. That's not what it's about. It's about bearing fruit. It's not about just having fig leaves to look pretty on the outside. It's about bearing the fruit, which leads to the last takeaway. And I didn't do these last two verses uh, just a minute ago, but in Matthew chapter 21, verse 21, it says this. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, it will happen. A lot of people take this verse out of context because it would be awesome if that were true. If I could just muster up enough faith to make Sandia Mountain move, <laughs> I'd be awesome. 
I mean, imagine you guys are all standing there. I'm like, watch this, guys. I got the faith. You know, I, you, you got the power. And up comes the mountain. Everybody's like, what? And I'm like, whoo, and just throw it. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Why isn't anybody able to do it? Do we just not have enough faith? No, that's not at all. That's not what Jesus was talking about to begin with. It was a figurative expression to illustrate what he wanted to tell us in a spiritual reality. It's not about mustering up enough faith to do what we want to do. It's about having the faith to understand that what God has called us to do is what he has called us to do. What his word tells us to do, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what it's about. What seems impossible with us is possible with God if we just ask in prayer. Because we see things in Scripture and say, well, there's, there's just no way. There's just no way that's going to happen. That's not, that's not possible. But God says, hey, I, I said it, and I'll do it if you just come to me in faith and ask me. And it's simply laying that out. And the interesting thing about this verse is when it says you, it means you all. It's a plural to it all. It, it means the body of believers coming together to say, how can we do what God wants us to do only by the power of God and having faith that he'll do that for us. What can Paragon Church pray for as a church, as a group of believers? What can we do to lift up and say, God, we want to do this, but only possible through your power. Do you guys have that neighbor that's just impossible to reach? There's just no way in the world they would ever set foot in a church. Do you have a friend a co-worker that's that way? Do we have a city that, according to all statistics, is 91% lost, meaning they do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? How can we get that down to any percentage lower than that? We look around, we say, oh, it's just not possible. Isn't that what God's called us to do? Don't we just need to have faith? You know, Easter is five weeks from today, which just is kind of crazy to me to think about. But as you look at Easter, Easter is an amazing event for most churches. But shouldn't it be more than just an event? Shouldn't it be an amazing celebration where people meet this king that we are talking about, that Matthew is laying out for us? This king can and will do the impossible when we ask. So why don't we ask him? Why don't we recognize that? Why are we going through the motions? way too often so we can either accept this and humbly follow this king and give our allegiance to him or we can look at matthew chapter 22 which we're not going to do today because i'm sure you guys are like no seriously don't not yet uh next week we'll do that matthew chapter 22 is everybody questioning everybody re uh, rejecting everybody pushing against what jesus has to say all the religious leaders, all the people that he's challenged, they either could have accepted it or they could reject it. And they're in the process of rejecting it. And that's what Matthew chapter 22 shows us. The choice is ours as well. Where are we at? Are you going to accept that Jesus is the king or are you going to reject that he's the king and try and do it all on your own? It's up to you. It's a decision that you get to make. But the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and in your life. And we'll see as it all comes about whether you choose to to battle in rebellion or if you choose to to follow and give your allegiance to him it's our choice to make you can either blindly follow rules instituted by man and look good on the outside or you can give your life to jesus i pray that you give your life to jesus As a matter of fact let's pray for that right now father thank you thank you for your word and thank you for your desire to show us 
who your son Jesus is. Your desire to emphasize that he is the king, that he is the one. He's the one that delivers us from our sins, something we could never do on our own, that as we walk away from him in rebellion, that God, he pursued after us, that he came and put on flesh, but yet was still God. Now, there's people in this room that have battled with this for years about making him their king. God, I pray you're working in their hearts right now. And maybe there's some that haven't battled it, but just have rejected it. God, I pray that you're breaking down that, that stone heart. That this is something that, that they see that there's a time to make that decision and there's a time they're going to confess either way. And now's the time as he's come to rescue them. God, you're good. And we're thankful that you love us enough to send your son. I pray whatever decision needs to be made is made today. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to step over into this side room over here and I would love to pray with you. I would love to have the opportunity to be able to, uh, to just talk with you about where you're at. Maybe you're struggling with Jesus as the king, maybe you're struggling with, with why. Why would God do that? Same thing we, we ask so often. Why do we pray? Why do we do this? It's, it's just a natural response for us. Why? I'd love to be able to help answer those questions. I can't guarantee I have them all. I can point you in the right direction. We can learn through it together. Why? Why would God save a person like me? Because he loved you. As a matter of fact, our Easter that's coming up, our theme is going to be Why Easter? Why do, we, why do we celebrate? Why do we have such a big day? Why does everybody get dressed up? Why does everybody show up to church that one day of the entire year? Why? Why did God do it in front to begin with? And it's all because of love. It's all because he loved you. It's all because he loved me. And that's why we celebrate it.